buddy. I left my notes behind this morning, but we've got voluminous. Uh, uh, yeah, go back a couple of slides, Dodson. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, when we go back, not forward, backwards. Um, it's um, yeah. It's might be a bit. <laughs> Hello, everybody. <laughs> Try again. Um, when I when Lee contacted me about speaking this morning. He said that you'd been doing some time on uh, spiritual warfare, which I said was really interesting because what I had on my heart to share was not directly related, but was certainly very closely related. Um, it's more of a, uh, what I'm gonna share today is more in the nature of a, um, of a lecture than a, than a sermon, most of the parts, certainly the first half. Uh, there's a lot of factual information. If you're in the habit of taking notes, don't worry about because the slides are available either from me or from the church office, so uh, don't sit there thinking you've got to take detailed notes. Um, just more importantly, just pay attention and, and, and get the general gist, and, uh, and if you do want to go over the details later, you can uh, go backwards. If you go, can we go to the previous slide? Do you know how to go backwards? Uh, what's that? Yeah, okay, yeah. Oh, it, doesn't, it doesn't have the, the animations. Maybe then. Okay, okay. Well, my topic today, we'll, we'll do it like this, is weird and wonderful, which uh, is an interesting uh, use of language, but uh, it's a brief summary of the limited amount that the Bible teaches about the heavenly realms, angels, demons, etc. Uh, so part of it is factual information. Part of it, the second part, is how it is relevant to you and me, i.e. why we need to know about it. And thirdly, how we should respond to this knowledge. Now, uh, next slide, I, I pull heavily on this book, which uh, I've read recently. If you're, this is a, a fairly meaty book. If you're, not, uh, if you're into theology and uh, want to understand the, the ancient languages and all of that sort of thing, then I can recommend you get a copy of this book and read it. Um, otherwise, probably just leave it at the, the summary that, that uh, I'm able to provide. But I found this, what I call a paradigm changer for me, which is quite amazing to say, because I've been a Christian, studied the scriptures for 40 years. It's not that it contained anything particularly new for me, but it was the way it synthesized and put it together, which I found really uh, novel and quite uh, healthy and helpful. So yeah, if, you, if you're interested in more information and, and, and that's your sort of scene, then uh, by all means get a copy of that book. Okay, that, now this message also comes with a health warning. Now, there's a, a quote there which I'll just read briefly from 1 Timothy. As I urge you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversies, speculations, rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They will want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know how they are, what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. So trust Paul to have a good uh, stand of, uh, of, of speaking the truth in love. Um, never is there a topic more where this is more relevant than talking about angels and demons. All you've got to do is spend five minutes on the internet Googling this topic and you'll find all sorts of weird and wonderful ideas out there, most of which are 
basically unbiblical, and in, in most cases they're scarcely more than only a fraction of them is biblical. They tend to focus on the weird and wonderful things. I mean, if you, if you know some of the pictures in the Bible of what, what these angels look like with their wings and multiple faces, that's what they tend to focus on. Basically, there's a whole world out there, as we'll soon find out, of angels and demons and spiritual beings, which the Bible tells us nothing at all about, only hints. And there's a reason for that, because the Bible is written on a need-to-know basis, right? What God tells us is the stuff that we need to know in order to live our lives in a godly manner here on earth. And to get involved in speculation about the things which we're not told about is basically wasting our time and risking derailing our faith as the health warnings in. So, so what I want to stress is let's not get too bogged down in all of the, all of the weird and wonderful bits, which is a, the, as I've called it. Um, let's focus on the, uh, what, what we know for sure and what it tells us about our life and how we're to respond. So uh, let's, let's, uh, having taken that on board, let's, let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that the world we live in is a, a weird and wonderful place, that we have a wonderful role to play in this, and we pray that you might give us enlightenment, Father, to understand what our role is and that uh, your word might become alive to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I'm going to explain the first half. I'm going to go through it fairly quickly. Um, most of it should be fairly self-evident, but... Uh, again, you, you might need to take away some of the slides and think about them because there might be some, some aspects that are probably different. So let's go. I'm going to describe the reality of the world. First, the first half, I'm going to talk about what the Bible actually teaches is the world that we live in. Have you ever had the experience? Did any of you had the experience when you were younger? This is an interesting thing. You know, you know how you, 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 when you're maybe five or six years of age and you suddenly discover that there's something funny going on in your family. You know, it might be that Aunt Jane doesn't talk to Uncle Bill. And you've always, you know, or it might be that, uh, you know, such and, someone in your family, that they don't get on and, and, and you don't know why. And then you, as you mature, you realise that there's a backstory in your family that you never knew about. You know, maybe 20 years before you were born, somebody insulted somebody else and, you know, the sort of thing that happened. And, and, and there's things going on beyond your experience. I remember, for example, my grandfather came to live with us when we were young. And my greatest memory of him was that on Sunday evening, he would go into his room and cry and listen to hymns, which I just took on board as a kid. You know, that's what my grandfather's like. It wasn't until I became an adult that I realized that, you know, that he had a sad life and that there were reasons why, which had happened completely before I was born, you know, to do with the fact that he, he grew up in the war and fought in World War I and was gassed out and that his wife suffered from PTSD and ended up committing suicide. All of these things which I had no idea about, but which obviously were part of his story. The reason I mention that as a picture is that we come to the Lord as Christians and we have no idea that there is actually a huge backstory going on, right? That we have no idea about that, that it existed well before we were even created, and we need to understand as mature believers a bit about what that story is so that we understand what's going on around us and how we're to respond to it. So let's have a look at the first slide. So this is the easy bit. Do you like the graphics? That's the graphic for God, right? In the beginning, 
God is the only uncreated being in the universe. Genesis 1, 1, we're familiar with. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So I think we're all okay with that. However, next slide. Here we have, somewhere in the middle of Genesis 1, 1, right, so in the, in the middle of that one verse, God created a whole universe of spiritual beings that we call angels, and there's a picture of one that I got off the internet, uh, it's the most, uh, certainly one of the ways in which, uh, in which they're described, there's certainly lots of other pictures of them, um, they have other names and descriptions too, um, we know that they were created at that point in time because of what it says in Job 38, where Job addresses, uh, God addresses Job and says, where were you, Job, when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand on what were its footing set and who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and the angels, literally the sons of God, shouted for joy. So what that verse tells us is that while God was actually laying the foundations of planet Earth, there were these spiritual beings which are described in the Hebrew language as the sons of God, um, given the metaphor of the morning, the morning stars, and that they were there cheering God on as he did this. So since the, the Earth was created in the second half of Genesis 1.1, one can only conclude that somewhere in the middle of that verse, these angelic beings were created. Now... That raises some interesting issues. Uh, go on to the next slide. So here we have a picture, a diagram, shall we see, of the state of being at that point in time, before mankind existed. So at the top we have God, we have all of these angelic beings uh, uh, who are un under him in submission to him. And what this tells us, oh dear, this is quite small, isn't it, for my eye? <laughs> okay. So the first thing that's interesting is that what it tells us is that although God is sovereign and ruler over all creation, it would appear that he delights in delegating the work to his creatures, which makes sense in one sense, because why else would you create? I mean, if, if, if you're God and you're self-sufficient in everything, why would you bother creating anything? And the answer is he obviously created beings for a purpose. And these, these beings were created to rule the universe. So... What that says is very interesting, is that the universe, as, as, as we see it, doesn't necessarily represent what God wants, but his creatures, both the good and the bad ones, because we'll see in a moment there are bad creatures, they have a real say in what happens. He does control the ultimate outcome, so he is sovereign, but not every step of the way. Now, we have a good example of that in 1 Kings 22, where, we, where the prophet there has an insight into what's called the council of God. So you know what I mean by council, where, where a king rules, you have a king and he rules with, with all of his advisors called his, his council. So you have a, the prophet sees a picture of this meeting of the divine council and the, and the item on the agenda is that King Ahab of Israel has basically overstayed his welcome, it's time for judgment and God is looking for a way of having Ahab removed. So he says... How can I get, how can we, because he talks to his council in the plural, how can we get rid of Ahab? What can we do? And, it, and, the, and the prophet says that he saw that various of these advisors came up with a suggestion, one after the other. And then one of the angels suggested, how about I go and be a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets, and that will lure Ahab to his death? Because Ahab, a, 
uh, was a worshipper of Baal, and uh, as a result, there were all these false prophets from, of the god Baal. And God thinks this over, and he says, that sounds like a good idea, it's going to work. Okay, do it. So the interesting thing is, is, you get an interesting picture. God could just have just, you know, sent a lightning bolt and wiped Ahab out. That would have been quite easy for God to do. But instead, he asked for suggestions and took the suggestion of one of his advisors. So these angelic beings have real roles, real power, real authority in the way the universe is run. So what does that tell us? Well, first thing we've got to realise is that what that requires of us is, first of all, patience. Right? The world is not as simple as, God, as just God being in control and everything happening according to his plan. Because that's often one of the criticisms of, of Christianity. If God is a God of love, why do bad things happen? The answer is that God doesn't control it in that way. He allows these beings to have, uh, have, have a role to play. And that just because something happens, it doesn't automatically make it the will of God. Right? The second thing is that it requires of us that we have to be people of action. Our, the choices we make, the decisions we make in life, actually do matter. Right? We have been created with the ability to make decisions. I prefer to put that rather than free will because that's a contentious way. But I mean, every day you make hundreds and hundreds of decisions that affect your life and the lives of the people around you, and they are real choices. God's given you that right to make those decisions, and there are consequences of those, both good and bad. So take that role seriously. Learn to make good decisions. And the third thing we need is faith. And faith in this context, I say, means that we need to trust God for the right outcome, even if the pathway appears difficult or even impossible. Often we find ourselves in that situation in life, right, where, where situations happen and we say, how can this possibly, how can God work good out of this? The answer is God is working good out of it. There are reasons beyond our understanding as to why bad things happen in the world. Um, what we need to trust is that God has his finger on the pulse and he's working things out for good. Okay, so that was the original creation. We, are we going so, okay so far? Okay, next slide. Along comes man and woman. There we have a nice little picture of uh, man and woman. And they are created, as you can see, underneath in the chain of authority, these divine beings. Psalm 8 describes that. It says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind to you unmindful of them, human beings, that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honour. So what this tells us is that we were created to rule over the earth. That's our role, right? We are high, not quite as high as the angels in the original order of creation, a little lower than the angels, it says, but apart from that, higher than everything else, right? So what this requires of us is that, similar to what I said at the previous slide, we need to take responsibility and we need to take care. We've been given complete responsibility for how this world operates. In fact, uh, our responsibility extends basically to all the physical realm. So we need to make sure that we use our gifts, abilities, and, and everything else to run this world the way God wants us to because we're going to be held accountable for how this world runs. Okay, next diagram. This is where it starts to get rather interesting. The details are a bit hazy, 
about the process, and Michael Heiser in his book covers a lot of that. But essentially, two things happened. The first is that some of these angelic beings use their free will to rebel against God, right? And the second thing that happened is that the human being, man and woman, Adam and Eve in the garden, chose to rebel against God also. And basically there was a, the, uh, some various incidents with the angelic forces at, just before the flood and also at the Tower of Babel. But at the end of that period after Genesis 11, we have basically two kingdoms in place where you have on the left, you have the, that picture where Adam and Eve have been, been replaced by a graphic there of a, a mass of humanity. Because I think when I think of sinful humans, I think of human beings in their, you know, in their mass lostness, if you see what I mean, that we see in our, our world today. That's a, so on the left, we have sinful human beings choosing to live their own lives, thinking that they are doing so of their own volition, right? Because that's the way normal human beings think that they're actually in control. But what actually has happened is that some of these rebellious spirits have actually been putting control over them. Because <laughs> if you remember from the first slide, human beings were created under the angels, which means that there's something natural inherent about human nature that makes us respond in that relationship to these spiritual forces, right? Because we were created in that way. So here we have rebellious human beings on the left-hand side who are <coughs> uh, under the authority of these demonic forces. And on the right-hand side, we have the rest who are in obedience to God, who have God and the rest of his angelic hordes uh, in submission. So the most senior of these spiritual authorities have been placed in authority over human beings, and these are those that the New Testament calls the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So here's where we're getting into the realm of what we mean by spiritual warfare, right? These are the beings that we're talking about. Now, they're not demons. That's something we need to stress. We'll talk about this later, right? They are spiritual forces um, that are far higher and more senior than mere demons. Demons are just messengers of these people. They want something done. They want some dirty work done. They send a, a lowest-grade messenger. These are the guys in charge. These are the real deal. These are the powerful elite, and they are in control the Bible says in the New Testament that the whole world is under the power of the evil one, and this is what it's referring to, that these spiritual forces, because they know how to control human thinking and human operation, they actually have a good deal of control over the world. So what does this tell us? That sin always has consequences, and that not all of the consequences can be seen. A lot, but not necessarily all, but certainly a lot of the forces that influence affect us, afflict us are spiritually in nature, not earthly. What's the response we need? First of all, deal with your sin. Right? Take sin seriously. If you've got sin in your life where you're not living according to God, that's a very serious business because what you're doing is you're actually putting yourself on this left-hand side of the picture. You're putting yourself voluntarily in submission to hostile forces who don't have your interests at heart. So if, you, if there's anything in life that you're struggling with, deal with it. It's, that, it's very important. The second thing to bear in mind 
is that we need to get ready for battle because there's actually a war going on. It was there before we were created. And we are involved. We are involved. You can't avoid that. So get ready for battle because battle is on. Okay. Let's see the solution now. Get move on to the next slide. Diagram four, called Emmanuel, what happened when Jesus came? So the, the, the difference here is that here we have down the bottom, and I, was, I, I had some interesting thought as to where to place Jesus in this, but this is Jesus surrounded by us, his disciples. So what we have is that Jesus, God himself in human disguise, came to earth to rescue sinful human beings, and he gathered disciples around him. In order to perform that rescue, he voluntarily made himself lower than the lowest humans so that he could lift us up. So there he is. I thought, where do I place Jesus? The answer is, Jesus placed himself at the very bottom. Right? Because he had a reason for that, because he, he cared about all human beings, the least and the greatest, and his aim is to lift them all up. So he placed himself lower than the lowest in order that he could raise them. And he requires us as his followers to go there with him. So, and I deliberately haven't got any lines of authority there because at this stage, the line of authority is a bit blurred because on the one hand, Jesus obviously is the son of God, reports directly to God and there's a direct line of communication there. But on the other hand, he's voluntarily relinquished a lot of that. And so he's put himself under the control of worldly authorities because that's the only way that could lead to his death on the cross. So I haven't put the line, but I mean, there's obviously some nuances there we need to understand. So what this requires of us, well, what it tells us first is that status is not something to be grasped, but something to be relinquished in love. For the sake of others, the fall of humanity, but also of the angelic beings was about pride. Redemption is about humility. Uh, my view, my, again, it's not provable in the scriptures, but my understanding of the, why these angelic beings fell is because of us. Not because of God, because of us that my view, understanding is that the angels were in control and when God created further beings that were destined to be his sons in a place of high authority and therefore over the top of them, they got their noses out of joint. So that, and I, said I can't prove this, but my general feeling from scripture is that Satan and all of his angels, their, their problem is pride their pride has been, uh, they've had their, their nose put out of joint and they take it out on us because we're the ones who are benefiting from God's amazing grace. So pride is, the, is always in the scripture, regardless of whether what I just said is absolutely, completely true or not. Pride is definitely the main problem and the solution is humility. Okay, next slide, getting close to the end of the factual. The situation now, Jesus died on the cross and was raised to glory, right? It says in Philippians 2 that because he's humbled himself under death on a cross, God raised him up and placed him at the highest place of authority. So there he is next to God, along with his disciples, in control over all of the, all of the, uh, the spiritual beings, right? But there's an open gateway, the sort of mauve uh, window there, going back to all human beings who are under the power of the enemy with an open invitation to come, right? And that is the basis on which we have come, the gospel. 
uh, the work of God was done on our behalf and freely. And so there's an open invitation for anyone who will can come and come out from under the, under the place of, uh, of, of, of being in submission to these demonic forces and right up snakes and ladders style, you know, one of those ladders that goes right up to the very top to the right hand of God, far above all powers and principalities and even the angels. So it's a status shift that those who humble themselves truly become exalted. So what does this tell us? Firstly, it's, the thing it mainly tells us is that when we talk about the gospel, there's a lot more at play than just the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins is a window into God's plan for your life. God's plan is to perfect you and lift you and make you into the image of God and place you high above everything else. Forgiveness is necessary in order for that to happen. Right? But the plan is not just to forgive you and leave you as you are. The plan is to take you high above and put, put you in a place of authority for all eternity. What this requires of us, we need to understand our destiny. It's only when we understand our destiny that our hardships in this life make sense. Um, and we have to live up to our destiny. We can live according to the flesh, like the sinful humans we used to be, or according to the spirit. If we live according to the right hand di diagram, then that is the only way we can be in, far in, be in authority over spiritual forces. That's the only way we can win the spiritual battle that's going on around us. That involves us being in Christ and Christ in us. There's, there's two aspects to our relationship there. We are in Christ, but his spirit is in us. So we are, like him, a spirit-empowered, regenerated human being. Right? In substance and in nature, we are the same as Jesus because of what he's done on the cross. So if we live according to the spirit, live according to our, what it means to be in Christ, then we live according to the diagram on the left. But if we live according to our own flesh, our own abilities, even if we're a Christian then we're living according to the diagram on the left, which means that we're automatically placing ourselves back under the power and authority of these whack job demons. Okay, and finally, the last diagram. This is where eternity comes in. That window of opportunity between fallen humanity and, and, uh, and God, one day will close, we don't know when. But it's a bit like the picture is in the, in the New Testament, a bit like Noah's Ark, that um, one day the door will close and all those who are outside will be left to their own devices, essentially. So uh, the red, uh, red line talks about uh, basically that, that time of judgment where God will have to deal with those who've refused to come in so they can't pollute eternity. But uh, on the other side, we have the status of where we will be for the rest of eternity, which is that there is God, right at the top, there is us, co-equal with Jesus, reigning over all the other spiritual beings. So you notice what's important that happened? In the original creation, we were created a little lower than the angels, right? Things have changed, there's been a power shift, there's been a change of status, we have gone right to the very top, a promotion. You are incredibly important to God and you will have an incredibly important job at God's right hand for all eternity. <coughs> if you understand the significance of your destiny, 
you will not be discouraged by the process necessary to make you worthy of that destiny. A bit like using a human analogy that you, know, you join a company as a male clerk or some fairly lowly position and management takes a look at you and says, that, guy, that person's destined for senior management. That one day that guy's going to be the managing director. So they put them in the management stream. You know, you don't just turn up at work nine till five doing the standard job of the mailroom clerk. You get siphoned off, you get transferred for a while into, for duties in another department. You, you have to work long hours. All because you're under training for a higher calling. That's what is happening to you and me. If you've come into Christ, you are under training for a higher calling. That higher calling is the highest calling of all that's run in the universe. Right? So don't be surprised if life gets tough from time to time. There's a reason for that, because you're being trained, just like our friend over here, the personal trainer will tell you, you, know, you need to exercise your muscles to be able to use them. Well, sometimes it's not easy to even want to exercise muscles, is it? But if you want to be someone who actually is able to use those muscles in the future, you need to understand that's what's going on. Okay, so that's the factual background. Let's now move on to the second part, which is essentially putting this together and what does it mean for us. Let's, the next one, first of all, I think is, there's two key scriptures, which are easy to gloss over, but I think are very important. The first one is a really interesting one. It's Paul being sarcastic, but his sarcasm actually tells us something, uh, something very useful. The context in 1 Corinthians 6 was that we had a church that like many modern churches, was uh, very fleshly, uh, didn't understand its, pu its purpose in God, and was, uh, and was uh, living very far below uh, its, um, it, 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 the standards required of a believer. Uh, and one particular manifestation of that was that there were disputes in the church, and one Christian was taking another Christian to court before the pagans. And Paul found this very disgusting, and this is what he said. He said... If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? So Paul's saying something really, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I, I detect some sarcasm in Paul's wording there, but what he's basically saying is, you know, take a look at the people in your church, even the lowliest ones, the ones that are, you know, that don't seem to have much to offer in, a, in terms of worldly wisdom or sophistry or anything like that. They're, they're ones that have actually been chosen by God to judge angels. There's going to be a trial one day, and all of these angelic beings are going to be put up before the, the, before the justice system to decide their fate, and you're the ones that's going to make that judgment call. Well, if God's entrusted you with that judgment call, surely to goodness you can judge between, you know, Roxanne and, and uh, whoever else, you know, and, and the next person, who, who, whatever there might be an argument going on in the church. You know, if, if, if the lowest person in your congregation is fit to judge angels, surely they're fit to judge, you know, if person A has hurt person B and what should be done about it. You see, the church had lost its way They'd gone back into the ways of the flesh and they'd forgotten their destiny and they'd gone back into running things the way human beings run things. We need to remember our destiny 
and put things in perspective. Second passage, again, Ephesians 1.18. Paul says this, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, and this is a great prayer to pray for yourself and for your church. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the glorious riches of his inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparable great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. Say, far above for me. Say it again until you mean it. Far above. Where has Christ been seated relative to the angels and demons? Is it just a little bit above? No, it is far above. He seized him at his right hand, far above all ruler and authority, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And then to make matters absolutely clear that he's not just talking about Jesus, but us, he says, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So God sent Jesus below the lowest of the low, through death, raised up to the highest of the high, far above all powers and principalities, and we are in him. So we also are far above all powers, principalities. And in fact, every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. A bit hard to follow, isn't it? A bit hard to understand, but it's true. Okay, next slide. What are the implications? I have five implications that I want to briefly discuss. The first is what is spiritual warfare? This stuff that we've been talking about uh, in, in sermons over the past few weeks, what's actually going on here? Firstly, it's a battle, but most Christians, in fact, I haven't had this mentality even until very recently. They think of it as a battle between God and the devil, right? But if you think about it, that doesn't make a lot of sense because God is far stronger than the devil, far bigger. There's no competition. If it was a fight between God and the devil, then there would be no fight, right? It's not between God and the devil directly. The battle is between you and the devil. Because remember what I said, your destiny is to be far above. At the current time, these demonic forces have control over human affairs. They don't want to give that up, right? So the battle is between you and every other human being and these demonic forces. Now that's a fairer fight because we're both created beings, so it's a real battle, right? And although the ultimate outcome in terms of humanity as a whole is, is uh, is settled, we know who wins the battle from the end of Revelation, we don't know for sure which individual humans are going to win and which ones are going to lose, that's why there's a battle going on. So the main battlefield is the human mind, 2 Corinthians 10.4, both for believers and for unbelievers, since no one can come to God except of their own free choice, the spiritual forces ploy is to blind human beings about what is at stake for them and what incredible blessings are theirs if only they would turn to God, right? That's the, tactic. That's the basic tactic. It's a fairly easy tactic to understand. 
keep, it, keep people distracted you know, so that they, they won't actually understand what's going on and do anything about it. Thirdly, our enemies in this battle are the rulers, authorities and powers of this dark world. As I said earlier, they're not just demons and they can't be cast out. Have you ever been in any sort of very high-powered prayer meetings where people, oh, we name this power and we name this principality and we cast it out of this earth? We, you know, it's not the way it works. These are not demons that can be just cast out. They're real spiritual forces which have real power uh, over, over human beings. What you have to do is we need to rescue people from under their power. By, and the only way they can be rescued is to come into the glory of the gospel. Right? So we are given, to this end, we are given the armor, which I'm sure we've been talking about, as, as we've been talking about in the last few weeks. Yeah. So the armor of God is there to do battle with the powers and principalities. Um, some parts of the armor are defensive, which is the purpose of that is to help you personally to stand against the attacks of the enemy. Other parts of the armor, like the sword, for example, are, um, are offensive weapons, which are designed to help you attack the strongholds where the enemy has power and rescue people who are under bondage. So there are both defensive and offensive weapons. We need to understand what those weapons are. And like any decent soldier, you need to understand what your weapons are and how to use them. So know your armor and use your armor. So that's, that's and the second thing, which I think, this is really, I think, an important slide. Warfare 101. Has anyone here been in the army? Or the armed forces in any time? Or the reserves? I haven't, no. Anyway. I imagine the first thing they teach you in basic training, apart from how to fight and stuff, is know your enemy. You know, this one is the enemy, this one is a friend. Don't kill this one kill that one. Pretty basic stuff, isn't it? You know, you're not much good, even if you're the best fighter in the world, if you're going into battle and you end up killing all your friends rather than your enemies. 101 spiritual warfare is no identify the enemy. All too often, unfortunately, Christians get deceived into fighting the wrong enemy and we need to avoid this very common trap. Simple rule, if it has flesh and blood, it's not the enemy. Right? If it has flesh and blood, if it's human, it's not your enemy. Even the worst human beings, yes, they serve the enemy, but they are captured. They've been taken captive. They are captives to be rescued, not enemies to be defeated. Now, that is particularly relevant when it comes to Christian involvement in politics, where all too often Christians fight against human beings because they don't like the ideas that those human beings espouse. It doesn't matter whether the ideas uh, that, pe that are being espoused in the marketplace are anti-God. The people who are espousing them are not your enemy. It is the spirit behind them which is the enemy, and therefore you don't fight against the people, you fight against the enemy. Now, I've got a little proviso back, back, back there. With, uh, I'm talking here about spiritual warfare. I'm not talking about human warfare, so I mean, if, if, if you're the victim of a crime or, you know, if you, someone attacks you or, you know, physically attacks you, yes, you are allowed to defend yourself and, yes, you are allowed to invoke the law and all of that. I'm not denying any of that, but I'm talking about spiritual battleground. We're not meant to fight back when people attack us. We are meant to, uh, to fight them with spiritual weapons, not worldly weapons. 
This simple principle is what puts the cross at the center of Christian experience. As Jesus said, he had 12 legions of angels at his disposal that could have saved him from the cross. It would have been no great difficulty for him to fight against the human beings that tried to put him in the, in the, put him, uh, in the grave. But that would not have solved the problem because it would not have rescued a single soul. Right? Jesus saw the bigger picture and we need to see the bigger picture too. That is why there is a cross at the centre of our experience. We are not to fight back. The devil doesn't play fair. He uses a tactic which we, in modern warfare they call the human shield which means he hides behind human beings, where we have the choice where if we're going to fight directly, we have to attack a human being. Um, the answer is we're not to do that. It is much better that we should suffer than that we should inflict suffering on other people, even sinful human beings. If you don't like that, well, that's not negotiable, sorry. It's... It's not something that the New Testament allows any possible negotiation on. That is why it says, you come to Jesus, you join his army, you've got to fight using his weapons. Okay, next slide. I've been here a few times in the, in the past few, few months. Uh, I've been talking a lot about the theme of holiness and dealing with idols. <coughs> this theme of spiritual warfare and understanding spiritual powers really puts flesh on the, on, the, on the bones of what this actually means. See, God's call to us to live a holy life and to do with our idols is directly related to the intensity of the warfare we're in. So an idol is something that we worship. Worship means giving worth to, value to, right? Worship is what it means. So idols are giving value to the spiritual authorities and what they stand for rather than giving value to Jesus and what he stands for. Holiness means living for Jesus in the power of his spirit rather than trying in our own strength to live a good life, however you choose to define that. When you live out of your old nature, right, you are automatically living under the authority and control of the spiritual forces and this is how the, the old nature was created. So when you live out of your old nature, live an unholy life, by definition, you're losing. It is only when you live by the Spirit, as Jesus lives, that you have real authority in the Spirit realm. So that's the, the context for holiness, why God is calling his people to live a holy life, because there's a, power, a battle going on, and that's the only one we're going to win, is if we live a holy life. Secondly, we have to live as pilgrims in this world rather than trying to make it a more Christian and thus easier world to live in. Um, all cultures have good and bad in them. You cannot make culture significantly better by political action. All you end up doing is making it better in some ways and worse in others. Now, sometimes that's worth doing. I'm not, <coughs> I'm not saying that you shouldn't be involved in politics. I mean, uh, the law of Australia, the law of our land, gives us as citizens the right to get involved. But we need to be wise. We're not going to solve the problems of Australia by political action. You might solve one particular problem, uh, but other problems will come back. Right? That is not our main battleground, is political, because 
our only battle is to, is, to, is to rescue people one by one out of the power of darkness. And what is especially powerful is when we, and I, by we I mean the collective we, right, is that in the church in an area or the group who call themselves Christian, when we, the church in the area, turn away from the popular sins of our culture and turn to Jesus wholeheartedly, then we start to demonstrate to the world around us what it means to be in the kingdom of God. And that's when people start to turn. There's an interesting story there in Acts chapter 19, which you can look up, where in Paul was in Ephesus, and he'd been there a couple of years, and they hadn't made huge progress. But then a strange thing happened where um, some Jewish, um, Jewish people decided that they liked the idea that Paul was able to cast demons out so they, in the name of Jesus. So they went around and they, and they said, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, they started casting demons out. Trouble is that the demons recognised that these people didn't have the authority of Jesus. So they said to them, Jesus we know, and Paul we know, but who the heck are you? And they beat them up. And from that strange incident, a fear of God enveloped not the communities around them, but the believers. And the believers said, we need to take seriously what's going on here. And it turns out they brought out what in today's terms was millions upon millions of dollars worth of occult material, which they had been secretly hoarding. You see, they'd become Christians, but they hadn't turned away from their sins. They'd kept it secret, they'd kept it hidden, right? And because of this simple incident, they, the believers started turning away. And what was the result of that? Revival broke out. Revival breaking out, in my view, is not a function of stronger evangelism. It's not a function of, uh, of greater prayer. All of these things are necessary, but they're not the, f the, not the central bit of, of the story. The central bit of the story is if my people will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, right? It is the sins within the church, the way we follow the ways of the world and therefore sit under the authority of these demonic forces that actually keeps the rest of our society in bondage. That's where we need to be. Okay, next slide. Taking up our cross needs to be understood in the context of our amazing destiny. Jesus made himself lower than the human lowest, which put himself in direct conflict with the powers of this world. We have to walk the same way. We also have to give up everything because our fleshly humanity is too small to cope with what God wants to do with, in us. Remember how we said last time that, the, you know, that he, Jesus said, whoever would come to me must give up everything they have? That's, that's the basic reason here. God's destiny for you is so much bigger than your fleshly nature can cope with that everything about you that you think of, even the things that you think of as good and important, has to go. Right? It is only after you get rid of all of these human uh, entrapments of the old nature that God will begin to work in you the power of the new creation, the power that puts you in authority over all of these angelic forces. Next slide, finally. Puts hardship in perspective. It's never in easy to enjoy hardship, but it's less difficult when we see it in the perspective of what it is designed to achieve, that we are being prepared for our role of judging the angels. 
Romans 8.18, I consider, says Paul, that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So finally, where do we come to? Last slide. What spiritual warfare is really all about? I would suggest that these two diagrams really sum up what is actually going on. Which way are you going to live? Are you, as a Christian, someone that says, claims you to be a, a believer, and, I, and I'm not saying that we are, but I mean, as, as someone that professes faith in Christ, are we going to live the way Christ has called us to live, which is on the right-hand side? Or are we going to live the way of our human nature, the way the rest of the world lives on the left-hand side? If you live under the left-hand left side, you live under spiritual forces. And all the prayer in the world is not going to change that. Right? So long as you live according to your flesh, that's what's going to happen. But if you start to learn to put yourself uh, in Christ, learn to live by the Spirit, uh, humble yourself under Him, you get exalted to the place far above all these spiritual forces. And that is what spiritual warfare is all about. Satan and his angels want you to stay in the left-hand picture. So long as... I, I, in fact, I'll go so much further as to say that, that if you... Satan doesn't really care, I don't believe, whether you claim to be a Christian or go to church or do any of the religious things. What he cares about is whether you live for Jesus. Because it is that is the, the issue which determines whether he wins or loses. And that's what's at stake. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you've revealed to us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the the power and the weapons that you've given us of our warfare, but pray you give us understanding as to, as to how we're to live and, the, and what we're to do with the weapons that you've given us and how to win this battle and win, indeed, this whole area of, of uh, the northern suburbs of Melbourne for you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.